Hi, this is Timothy Bartell with the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine's School. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and, seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be a time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare, and do I dare, time to turn back and descend the stair, with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin, do I dare? disturb the universe. In, in a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I begin? Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. And the afternoon, 
The evening sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired. Or it malingers, stretched on the floor, here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to fo force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some, some talk of you and me, would it have been worth while to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one, settling a pillow by her head, should say, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this, and so much more? It is impossible to say just what I mean. But, as if a magic lantern through the nerves and patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward the window, should say, that is not it at all, that is not what I meant at all? No. I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. Am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince. No doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. I grow old. I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. Perhaps you recognized the poem I just read. It's a long poem of 131 lines. It's called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and 2017 marks the 100th anniversary of the book that it was first published in, called Prufrock and Other Observations. The poet who published this book was American. He was from St. Louis, Missouri. He was born in 1888 and came into manhood as the 20th century was rolling around, uh, like most privileged young men who had academic aspirations. He went off to the Ivy League schools. He went to Harvard in particular. And he records that he wrote this poem 
1911. It was a number of years before it was published on its own. It was first published in Poetry Magazine in 1915, but he had also written a few other poems that went along with it from uh, around 1909 through uh, 1912, and they were all published together in 1917 as Proof Rock and Other Observations. This young man, as you may know, was Thomas Stearns Eliot, or we know him better as T.S. Eliot, and he would go on to become arguably the most important poet, not just in America, but in England in the 20th century. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock was something of a grenade dropped into the teens, into especially the poetry world of the teens. Experimental poetry is always being written in the sense that poets are always trying new things. It's something that uh, artists are often known for. In fact, we think of art as uh, courting novelty, courting originality. I've talked on this podcast before about how pure courting of originality, pure desire to just uh, do something new for the sake of doing something new, uh, sometimes gets artists into trouble. I'm reminded of the quote by Flannery O'Connor, you can write anything you can get away with, and no one's ever gotten away with much. Well, T.S. Eliot got away with the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and the tone in which it's written, the style in which it's written, the, the approach to dramatizing a voice of a character in a long lyric poem was accepted, caught on, and in fact imitated not just by a thousand apprentice poets, but by even other great poets of the day. Ezra Pound, who was a friend and sometime mentor, and sometime editor of Eliot's verse, wrote a poem called Hugh Selwyn Mauberly a few years after the love saying of J. Alfred Prufrock. And Hugh Selwyn Mauberly is a well-written poem and certainly worth reading and is considered one of the best poems written by Ezra Pound, who's considered one of the most influential and best poets of the 20th century. But to read Mauberly is to see that mostly it's just Prufrock, but not quite as good. There's something about proof rock. There's something about this approach to writing long lyric poetry that Eliot discovered in Massachusetts, in Cambridge, around 1910, 1911, that really set the course for what poetry would be ever since. We haven't gotten away from proof rock. And so for the next couple podcasts, I want to talk about this little book. There are... Uh, more poems in the book than we have time to talk about. But I want to talk about the first poem, a poem in the middle, and a poem towards the end. Today, I want to start by talking a little bit about the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock itself. It's the first poem in the collection. And as I mentioned before, uh, it's the longest poem uh, in the collection. And it's hard to say anything about proof rock that hasn't been said before. This is a little bit of my difficulty in choosing to talk about proof rock. It's a poem that, as far as I know, many high schoolers, maybe even most high schoolers read, if they read poetry from the 20th century, they read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I remember reading it in English class as a 12th grader. Uh, Debbie Lang, Mrs. Debbie Lang, had me read it, and it was first my first introduction to poetry. And if uh, Mrs. Lang is out there re uh, listening, thank you so much for introducing me to Eliot. Proof Rock is an odd poem 
partly because it's been used to epitomize many different, yet related, yet different perspectives in the early 20th century. It's published first in 1915 on its own and then in, uh, in the book form, Proof Rock and of their observations in 1917. So many have read it as a poem of World War I. It comes out in the midst of the war. It seems to be an expression of the teens. Uh, Eliot, by 1915, was living in London. And so some have seen it as the voice of perhaps the, uh, the young man in London uh, struggling with the London... Uh, social scene and maybe the the anxiety that the war is going on just over there. It's been read that way. It's been read, oddly, as an exploration of middle age, even though it was written in uh, relatively uh, young age by Eliot. Uh, these images of my hair is growing thin. Do I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? It seems like perhaps a simpering middle-aged or even elderly man. So some have read it as an exploration of uh, the aging Victorian or the man who's trying to integrate into Victorian or even Edwardian society but having a hard time. It's been read as an English poem. It's been read as an American poem. It's been read as a poem of frustrated fragmentation. It's been read, I think, also as sort of a mockery of frustrated fragmentation. Oh, how silly Prufrock is. Look at this silly man. Or is it very serious? Is this supposed to be tragic? After all, at the very end, not sure all of what's going on at the end. I don't know that anyone could claim that they know all of what's going on at the end. But at the end, in the last line, the main character, and maybe even other people, drown till human voices wake us and we drown. Is this a tragedy? Is this a comedy? Is this a satire? In asking all of these questions and in summarizing the different ways that people have approached this, I think we can see why it retains its interest for us. It's a poem that is very suggestive, very provocative of questions, especially, I think, about male 20th century identity. What does it mean to be J. Alfred Prufrock? Who is J. Alfred Prufrock? In reading some criticism of this, uh, people have put forth particular theories as to who this is based on. Uh, was it the uncle of a friend of Eliot? Is it, in fact, Eliot himself? Is it Eliot extrapolating several decades in the future and seeing himself as an older middle-aged man? Did Eliot, as some have suggested, view himself as sort of an old man in a young man's body. Was Eliot ever young? Robert Crawford, uh, who just came out with a biography of Eliot called Young Eliot, talks about this feeling in Eliot's verse that when we first meet Eliot in print, he already sounds old and jaded. Often when we think of the young poet, we think of, of earnestness, of, of youthful vitality. Was Eliot ever youthful and full of life? Or was he always old and depressed? I want to start, because I've asked so many questions, and obviously we're not going to answer all of them. I want to start where I often start, in thinking about form in this poem. Many, including yours truly, have blamed Eliot for popularizing free verse in the 20th century. And I think it's, it's now an axiom to say that Eliot, and Pound with him, 
popularized an approach to poetry that wasn't as focused on traditional forms, certainly not on traditional forms like the sonnet or the ballad. But I think it would be selling Prufrock short to see it as a poem that eschews form entirely. In fact, most of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is in fact in iambic meter. But the regularity of line length and also the keeping to a strict number of iams per line is a little more fluid. Let's look at the first stanza. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Except for maybe one or two variations, these are alternating patterns of stress and unstress syllables throughout the stanza though the line lengths vary. Let's look at the first couple lines. Let us go then, you and I. This is one of those weird lines that it's hard to tell whether it's trochaic or iambic. It starts with let us, which is a classic trochee, stress syllable, unstress syllable. But it doesn't continue trochaic, or at least it doesn't end on a trochee. It ends on a stress syllable. So if you read it from the back, it looks like it's an alternating series of unstressed stressed. It's a classic uh, hymn meter, in fact, the even-numbered lines of the traditional English hymn are either six or seven syllables. If it's seven syllables and there's alternations between one stressed, one unstressed, one stressed, one unstressed syllable, you get a very interesting line of seven syllables that begins with a stressed syllable and ends with a stressed syllable. Let us go then, you and I. Seven syllables and you have stress, unstressed, stress, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. Let us go then, you and I. Content-wise, this sounds like what we would expect from a love song. It seems to have made good on the promises of the title, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, Let Us Go Then You and I. Ah, a meter that sounds a little hymn-like a you and an I, as we've, as we've talked about before in this podcast, whenever you have you and I, we're automatically put into thoughts of the beloved and the lover. Okay, awesome. This is a traditional love poem with pretty understandable meter. Let us go then, you and I. When the evening is spread out against the sky. Well, this is a longer line. When the evening is spread out against the sky, if we count it out of uh, more accentuating the stressed syllables, we find this is a 11-syllable line. And in fact, it's doing the same thing that the seven-syllable line is doing in that it's starting and ending with a stressed syllable. And in between, there's alternating unstressed and stressed syllables. So once again, is this a trochaic line that's missing the last unstressed syllable? Or is it an iambic line that has an extra stressed syllable starting it? Well, it's kind of neither. It's one of these weird bookended lines that has stressed and stressed at both ends. It's 11 syllables, so it stretches out beyond the seven syllable line. And I think clues us in that this poem is going to be weird. 
there is no traditional form that alternates between seven syllables and 11 syllables. If there's alternation, it's usually between eight and six or eight and seven, or sometimes maybe between eight and 10 and 10 and eight. Here though, we have seven syllables, 11 syllables. So in case we thought this was gonna to be totally conventional, our expectations are broken, but the form and the strict paying attention to alternating stressed and unstressed syllables is kept. Now, why am I stressing this? I think perhaps a criticism of my approach to poetry, which I even uh, sometimes tell myself, is that Dr. Bartel, you spend so much time counting out stressed and unstressed syllable patterns. Why does it matter? Well, here's why it matters. Because the whole spirit of what 20th century poetry will be rests upon this opening stanza. It's one of the most famous opening stanzas, I think, in all of English poetry. And some have said that in four or five lines, Eliot ruins English poetry. Lewis and Chesterton both criticize the opening of this for being so different than what had come before that it breaks the tradition. I'm trying to point out then that in these first two lines, we have something pretty conventional and very meticulous in metrical scheme. Let's keep reading. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Now we have an actual trochaic line, like a patient etherized upon a table. That is trochaic hexameter. It took the 11 syllable line that we had before and adds a final 12th unstressed syllable that kind of fills it out. It has become a very conventional line. Though hexameter is a little long for trochees. Usually with trochees, we have trochaic tetrameter or even trochaic trimeter, sometimes trochaic pentameter. Trochaic hexameter is kind of stretching the bounds of conventionality. Also, look at what this is describing. We have let us go then you and I, okay, very, very romantic opening. When the evening is spread out against the sky, oh, this is pretty. Uh, a lover and their beloved are go going on an evening walk. How sweet. And now he's going to make a simile for us. How, how great and conventional. What is, the, what is the evening is spread out against the sky like? Oh, J. Alfred Prufrock, lover. It's like a patient etherized upon a table. I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote, I have looked at many evenings and none of them have ever seemed to me like a patient etherized upon a table. Lewis just, just really hated this line. With this line, which as I've said is strictly metered and very intentionally metered and metered in intentional relation to the lines that come before and after it, in it he gives us a simile for nature that is... Well, honestly, I think it's ugly. It's at least a little disturbing or unnerving. An etherized patient would be someone who's under an early form of anesthesia, probably prepped for surgery or maybe after surgery. Either way, either way we're thought of, we're put in mind of something that's unnatural. To be anesthetized is not natural. 
I mean, we might think of it as an important, and indeed it is an important advance in medicine. But the anesthetized person is vulnerable in an unnatural way. It's not just someone sleeping. That might be nice, though it, though it would call to mind images of vulnerability. But this person is, has been artificially put to sleep. It feels disturbing. It feels a little weird and kind of hospitally. Uh, there, there's a there's a long tradition of seeing hospitals uh, in art as as slightly creepy places. We associate them with sickness and death, but I think also with uh, weird medical apparatuses uh, and weird power structures. Where if someone's been anesthetized and is being uh, operated on, there's this almost godlike power that the doctor has over the patient that creeps us out. All of this, most of 20th and 21st century criticism has said, is something that is intentional on Eliot's part bringing this up. There's something about the evening that's unnaturally etherized. So we've gone from very conventional love imagery, a pretty image of lovers walking at evening, to something disturbing, Right, this isn't traumatically disturbing. And I, I think sometimes the disturbingness of this can be overemphasized, and maybe I've even overemphasized it. But we have to think about the tradition that's come before. The love poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning uh, to Robert Browning, uh, the love poetry uh, written by uh, Tennyson, uh, these Victorian voices of love poetry, people knew what to expect from them. Uh, if they were surprised by them, they were surprised by the beauty of the phrasing of talking about love, both requited and unrequited. What they weren't used to is lovers under a sky that was described in an unnerving and creepy way that then casts a whole light upon love itself and the lover and beloved themselves as perhaps there's something wrong with them. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets. Another 11-syllable line. So it's not like the etherized patient has broken all form, as sometimes people talk about this poem as having done. It doesn't break it. We, we're still with alternating stress and unstressed syllables with these bookended stress syllables at the first and 11th. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. So restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells are lines of iambic pentameter. So we've dropped this first stressed syllable uh, that makes it 11 syllables. And now we're just with conventional Shakespearean or Miltonic or Popian or Wheatleyan pentameter. And in fact, Pope and Wheatley are important there because Pope and Wheatley are the poets of the rhyming couplet. And this is an iambic pentameter rhyming couplet of restless nights in one night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Um, also, those oyster shells put us in mind of New England. And in fact, this is where this is written. But between let us go through certain half-deserted streets and of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, there's this odd little short line, the muttering retreats, which brings us back to, in fact, a line that's the shortest in the poem so far of iambic trimeter. 
the muttering retreats. It's so close in length to let us go then you and I that on the page it looks they 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 call out to each other by their shortness and all of a sudden we see a pattern emerge let us go then you and I is seven syllables after that we have three lines which are 11 or 12 syllables then we have another short line the muttering retreats and then we actually have three more lines that are 10 or 11 syllables of restless nights in one night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument. We're back to 11 syllables with that first and 11th syllable stressed. Of insidious intent. Oh my goodness, we had a line of seven syllables, three long lines, a line of six syllables, three long lines, and now we have another line of seven syllables. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. And to lead you to an overwhelming question is a very interesting line because it has uh, quite a bold heritage. To lead you to an overwhelming question is a line of iambic pentameter. But it's 11 syllables, so it has an extra unstressed syllable. And in fact, the last two syllables of this line are the word question. And the first word is two. Now let me test, O oh listener, your poetic trivia knowledge. What other famous line in English poetry starts with two? is iambic pentameter with an extra unstressed syllable, the last word of which is question. Two, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, question. To lead you to an overwhelming question, to be or not to be, that is the question. Oh my goodness! Eliot has just brought Hamlet into this poem. And in fact, if you remember having read the poem yourself or my reading of the poem at the beginning of this podcast episode, you will remember that Hamlet becomes an explicit mention several times in this poem. So, Prufrock is one of the oddest poems of the 20th century and one of the most important poems of the 20th century because it is starting off a love poem that subverts our expectations and makes everything creepy, but retains very strict intentional meter and very strict and intentional metrical patterns in how many lines are in what kind of meter. And at the last line of the first stanza, gives us a riff on, a rewriting of the most famous line from Shakespeare. Why is Prufrock important, both as a poem and a collection? Because it's bringing English poetry into the 20th century. It's retaining and, I would say at times, perfecting the metrical variety and sound and structures of all previous English poetry. It's bringing Shakespeare with it. It's bringing Pope with it. It's bringing Wheatley with it. But it's subverting and making creepy and making fragmented poetry which before maybe was comforting, poetry which before maybe disturbed but in more old-fashioned ways. 
To be or not to be, that is the question, is a disturbing line. It should be. But ether haunts this stanza. The new 20th century and its unnatural abilities, its unnatural desires to perhaps play God with nature and man. All of this is being brought up. In the next episode, I want to talk about the poem Preludes, which comes a few poems later in the collection, and see how Eliot continues two things. One, retaining the best of English metrical and formal traditions while exploring this new 20th century scene, which is not as comforting, which is not as unified, which is perhaps a little more grief-stricken and disturbed than poetry before. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. Thank you.